welcome to High Action. I'm Perry Smith. I'm Will Brom. I'm John Story, and together we're the New West Guitar Group. On today's episode, we're featuring the great John Schofield. A special thanks to our Patreon members and our sponsors who make this podcast possible. For more information on High Action and how you can get involved, please visit www.newwestguitar.com slash highaction. All right. Welcome to episode one of our podcast. We are so excited that you're here joining us. High Action, the podcast we created during the pandemic, and we're coming to you live now. I'm with my brothers, John Story and Will Brom. Let me just start out by asking John, who's coming at you from Burbank, how are you doing today, my man? Man, doing great. Just loving it. Just living life, practicing, working on some music, and so excited to release this podcast today, you guys. Congratulations. We did it. I know. We did it. We spent the last couple months producing this, and you and I have been trying to figure out all these different guests that we could gather and come together with, and... It's been a great thing to do in spite of kind of losing all of our gigs and our performances. We had a lot of good stuff on the calendar this year that got kind of postponed or canceled. And obviously that's the right thing to do during the pandemic, but it gave us a chance to kind of do something else, which is this podcast. Uh, but I wanted to ask you, John, uh, what else have you been doing when you're not working on this podcast? What are some of the other projects you've been able to get into this summer? Oh, I'm cooking a lot around the house, making frittatas and all sorts of breakfast <laughs> items. And, uh, definitely my cooking has increased. Oh, yeah, me too. Uh, lost about 15 pounds, so that's Congrats. great. Nice. Um, but besides all of that, um, yeah, I've been working on some film scoring projects, which have been pretty exciting for me, two of my first feature films. Um, one nice. called Songbird that's coming out early next year. And besides that, my teaching has just been ramped up I have, I'm sure like you guys do, it's just like the private lessons and all the one-on-one lessons. And it's been fantastic. It's been great. I feel like I've refined my teaching and my college class continues to survive the budget cuts that we're facing. And, uh, and it's been a fun challenge for me. I'm officially the uh, studio jazz band director at Pierce College, which has really been fun. But yeah, man, it's been good. I've, I've been focusing on my health, focusing on my music. And just honestly dreaming a lot about what this podcast is going to become because, man, we've got a pretty got a amazing lot of cats. lineup coming up. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, cats. it's great to get the podcast off the ground. I mean, we had this idea a couple months ago and we thought, well, we love this instrument. There's a community out there of guitar players. I yeah. know that's always been a great thing that we've felt with this instrument, that there's a real community out there. No matter what genre you play, guitar players kind of always have this connection to one another. And um, let me ask you, Will, what's been going on with you kind of during the pandemic? How you been holding up? Everything cool? Everything's good. I have, I have so much more time to devote to to the art and the music and, and the nuance, you know, I remember something you always say, like when we're talking about preparing new West music is the devils in the details. And I mean, I'm sure you guys all agree. It's like, we have so much more brain capacity now, as opposed to a year ago to just dig deeper into the art. So I, I think that's a huge positive. I agree. You know, we have to find the silver lining during this time. It can be, 
hard and uh, depressing to see your performances rescheduled or canceled, but maybe it's an opportunity to turn inward and really kind of develop your guitar playing. And, and speaking of guitars, John, one of the things I always enjoy about <laughs> being on this podcast and seeing you over Zoom uh, is all <laughs> these wonderful guitars you got back there. So talk to some of the listeners about your great guitar collection. What have been some of the guitars you've been playing more recently? Um, man, my L5 playing that a lot. My Marquione playing that. I bought a Telecaster. Finally sprung and bought that. I know that that's a little taboo to say in the New West Guitar Group, a Telecaster. But no, uh, we're, <laughs> hey, we're pro Tele now. We got to be. Yeah. It's 2020. All, yeah, exactly. It's 20. All hands 20. on deck, you know. Exactly. I mean, we can, we can have a Tele now. And my baritone guitar, yeah. And I, I am into the guitar rack thing these days where you keep them all out. Because it's sure a lot easier to sit down and practice classical, acoustic, baritone, telly, 335. You just, every day, I just go down the list of all of them. Yeah, that's <laughs> killing. It's, it's great. It's, 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 I'm, I'm into it. I'm into the guitar rack thing. Yeah, that's killing. I got to get one. You know, because listen, I used to keep my guitars out on the stand. And then you remember what happened. One of my freaking Ooh. cats, oh, like hitting. not like a musician, but an actual feline cat, ran by and just toppled the guitar off the stand and broke the neck. Was little it known, sunny? it was smoky. That little, <laughs> little known fact. That's the second time that my headstock has broke Oof. on this beautiful 175 of mine. Uh, the first time was when we were on a flight. Uh, God, yep. it just makes me feel nostalgic about flying and traveling like we used to. But we were on a flight. I had checked it in my hard case, but it didn't make it. I didn't pack it right. Yeah, uh, it's funny reminiscing about all the traveling we used to do, isn't it, John? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's not funny and it's uh no it is it is funny it is funny you guys and for those who are listening maybe you've caught new west before live in person and this is a chance to get to hear us in a different way yeah um, and i certainly you know i miss it i miss the scenery i miss going to the random holiday and expresses and the random del tacos that we eat out on the road yeah but, one thing but you, you definitely miss are the rental vans Oh, you were the yeah. driver and the rental car guy for our group, and uh, yeah, that was those are some fun times. Oh, I mean, I call Alamo and they just say, "What's up, story? Can we get you a town and country today?" <laughs> you know, I mean, I got the hookup and Enterprise. I mean, they roll out the red carpet for, for the New West Car Group. I mean, we practically own stock in these rental car companies now with all the rental cars. Yeah, if only. Yeah. I miss it. And we will be back. We will be back. But in the meantime, yes. this podcast is a chance for us to all get to hang and connect and learn together and grow as a band. I mean, hey, man, necessity is the mother of invention. That's very true. That's a great line. And it's cool. I mean, I'm out here in New York. You guys are out in L.A. We've been interviewing guests from all over the world. And we're able to connect virtually like this and learn a lot from everybody. Uh, you know, it's in spite of these crazy times. We're in the middle of a free fall pandemic in this country uh, and you guys out in california are in the middle of pretty intense wildfires so will let me yes. ask you you know how are you doing out there with the air quality and walking around and being in la yeah well i you know i'm fortunate everything's okay i have a i have a routine in my life you know since i'm not touring and it's pretty wonderful actually yeah it's what, amazing how how your uh your personal and physical health can improve when you're not touring. <laughs> oh my God. I know what you mean. What have you been practicing on? What have you been digging into? Oh man. I've been spending an hour every morning on, on Jimmy Weibel's solo etude books 
and you know doing a lot of writing a lot of recording as i know john has and perry i'm sure you too yeah um things are good i'm just i'm just living inside the music that's deep pretty much the same for me just been working a lot on the guitar trying to get my music out there trying to record as much as possible teaching lessons and as you guys know i'm a new father so i've been raising yes. my little Yay. boy he's thor. almost yeah little henry thor yeah he's almost one and now that we're here into the fall we're into september we're releasing the first episode of this podcast you know for the listeners you guys should know we've worked so hard on producing this and, and trying to bring it to life. And we're starting out with a bang, a truly amazing guest. It's uh, not every day you get to talk with somebody who played with Miles Davis, especially a guitar player. We have the wonderful John Schofield here on the mm-hmm. first episode, who he's a hero yeah. of all of ours. I mean, yeah. Yeah. everyone. He's had a career it's over 40 years at this point. Yeah. You know, his recording catalog is immense you know and and so to hear about him talk about you know each of the different periods of his career was fascinating and certainly playing with miles i mean that's got to be the biggest thing that influenced him in his career and uh john you know you've had some interactions with him as well and you know what were some of the things that you know you kind of uh took away from this interview Oh man, it, it, like um, we all share this this instrument, the guitar, and it continues to be in so many ways a, a mystery for us. But you see someone like him who's gone so far with the instrument, with the music, with the artistry, and it's just like looking at the Grand Canyon. You got to kind of step back for a minute and just take it all in and appreciate it. And he's so giving, you know. Not you, you wouldn't assume guys of his level and his stature would be so offering to players like us who mm-hmm. grew up listening to his music. And, and I feel so lucky, man, that we're, we're jazz guys and a lot of people in jazz seem to be like this at his level. But to be able to get him on high action as our first episode, man, talk about a highlight. I'm very excited for the listeners to check it out today. Yeah, yeah, it was heavy. And, you know, I got to know him a little bit about 10 years ago when I first got to New York. And it's kind of amazing, you know, there's not too many guys like him, people that seem to be just as influenced by, you know, Dexter Gordon and Bird, Joe Henderson, and also people like B.B. King and Albert King and Jimi Hendrix. You know, he, he really embraces kind of both sides of that uh, type of improvisation. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's a truly amazing thing with Schofield, and it was awesome to kind of get him to share his experiences. So... We're excited to share this episode. We've got a lot of great episodes coming up this season. So for people checking out the podcast, make sure you subscribe. And we're just stoked that you're here with us and embarking on this journey with us. So please enjoy our very first interview with the great John Schofield. It is really an honor and a pleasure to have you here on our podcast. Uh, let me just start out by asking you, how are you doing this morning? Everything going okay? Yeah, everything's good. I'm just hanging like I have for the last four months. So it's great to talk to you guys. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, just to give you some context, as you know, 2020 has been a very challenging year for everybody. The three of us mm-hmm. perform a lot together. 
as a band and also individually. And when we saw all the gigs uh, being canceled and postponed, we thought to ourselves, let's try and do something that we can really still be connecting right. with each other on. Maybe something that we can even help foster some community. Right now seems like a good mm-hmm. time to build community with each other. And Yeah. And that's sort of been the impetus of this podcast. And when you said that you were interested to come on and speak to us, I was just thrilled. I was over the moon. You know, we've, we're big fans of your playing. And for me, it's very special because, you know, I came from California to New York, specifically to NYU, to try to get to hang and study with you, John. And it oh, did. It my did. God, Perry. <laughs> uh, that's, a, that's so nice because I'm, I love your playing. Oh. And uh, all you guys are great. So I, I feel equally honored to be here uh, talking to you guys. Super shredders, each and all and every one. <laughs> this is high praise coming from you, uh, John. Well, uh, it did not disappoint. It was incredibly inspiring getting to hang with you. And you know, one of, the, one of the many things that I admire about your playing and your artistry is that you've really honed your sound over the years mainly through this one instrument, through the semi-hollow Ibanez, the, the old AS200 model. Uh, now, of course, you have your own models. Uh, but my first question for you was just to ask you, you know, what was it about the semi-hollow that really drew you in uh, versus a, a 175 or a mm-hmm. telly? What was it about the semi-hollow model that connected to what you were trying to do? Because you've been playing it since, the, the, I guess, the 80s, right? Even maybe before that. Before, before then, well, it's kind of weird, you know, because when I uh, started out and went to Berkeley, I bought a 175, just like the one that's in back of you right now. Oh, wow. And uh, I still have it. It's from 1968. And that was my, you know, jazz guitar that I was going to be a jazz guitarist on. Actually, the first record I ever made was with Jerry Mulligan. I was still playing that. And right at that time, I got a gig with Billy Cobham's band, which was a loud electric fusion band. So I said, I know... My 175 is not going to make it. At that point, I got a 330 that worked for about a month. And, I, and even then, I had taped it up and everything. And then, and then I went over to this Les Paul Jr. that I bought. I traded the 330 for a Les Paul Jr. And that was, I was rocking out on that. Because you know, I had started out with a uh, solid body guitar as a kid. And then I just felt like there was something in between. And being a B.B. King fan for years and... Uh, Knowing about semi acoustics, I uh, at the end of the Billy Cobham thing, when I was still playing loud gigs, I thought it would be the proper interim thing between you know a solid body and a hollow body, and uh, I've just stuck with it. I'm not sure why. Uh, I guess I just like to play loud all the time, and it works. <laughs>
I've heard a um, kind of interesting story about how you got connected with the Ibanez people. I was wondering if you could talk about that. I think you were on the road. It was just in Japan, and they showed up at the gig or something. Can you talk a little bit about that moment? when? Exactly, yeah. It was a, um, I was on the road with Tara Masahino, a Japanese, great Japanese trumpet player's band, in 1982. And I had my, my 335 Gibson. And uh, at that point, I didn't know how to do neck adjustments. <laughs> I didn't trust myself. Yeah. Steve Swallow had already broken my guitar once oh my by God. trying to do a neck adjustment. And my neck was bent, you know, and I was playing it with a ridiculously high action, no pun intended, because yeah. of the warp, you know. Yeah. And uh, Ibanez came to a gig in Nagoya and, and handed me this guitar. I said, you want to play this? We'll give it to you. And it was this beautiful AS200 that I still play, you know, and uh, I just started playing it and I still play it often today. I have two AS200s. The the 335, I adjusted the neck and uh, that's still a good guitar too. I'm starting to think it doesn't matter what guitar you play as long as it's a good guitar. Yeah. It turns out, you know, yeah. I mean, they Utelis and 175s are completely different worlds, and a 335 is a completely different world. Of course, there are those sonic differences, but there's so much more that's more important about making music, and jazz especially, you know. Mm -hmm. It's one thing if you want a Chinese sound for a rhythm part on a track or something, you know, and then you would play that kind of guitar, but just... You know, I, I don't know. And sometimes I, I have these recordings where I play another guitar, uh, like a Strat or a Tele, and people would think it sounds exactly the same as my 335s. So I don't know. So who knows? Well, you've, you've developed an incredible sound on it, um, whether you're playing loud or whether you're playing quiet. Some of the interactions we mm -hmm. had at, at uh, NYU, I remember you playing uh, at a pretty low volume, and it sounded amazing. So I think whatever oh, you've yeah. been able to yeah. do, on that guitar, it's it's phenomenal. You just get used to a guitar, and then I think you have to play a guitar for a long time to see what it can do, too. I agree. I mean, I've been playing this 175. It was uh, since about 98, mm -hmm. just off the rack at Guitar Center, and mm -hmm. put a few custom things on it, a new bridge, but I've certainly learned a lot about that guitar over the years from playing it and, mm -hmm. and developed my own playing through that guitar. Uh, I wanted to ask you uh, a little bit about you know, your career toward, sort of towards the beginning, you have such a truly prolific career. At this point, it's over 40 years. You've played with just about everybody. Uh, your recording catalog is amazing. And uh, I'm always curious to ask players about sort of some of the influential moments early on in their career. And I know you were at uh, Berklee School of Music in Boston and, and quickly made your way down to New York and started playing with a lot of people. And... Uh, this sort of relates to one of the themes we have in this podcast, which is about collaborations, the great musical collaborations people have had. John Story and I started this group 15 years ago, and it's been a really important, wow. important collaboration for us. Will joined uh, about five or six years ago and has elevated the group to new, to new levels. And so, you know, the collaborations that you have with musicians are so important and in the, I think it was a mid to late 70s, you met Steve Swallow. And I know that's been a really important musical collaboration. He, you still play with him today. Uh, your most recent uh, release on ECM is Swallow Tales. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit about meeting Steve Swallow and how that collaboration and relationship has influenced you throughout your career. Sure. Um, 
I agree with you. I think uh, music's a collaborative thing, you know. That's what I miss the most in quarantine is getting out and playing with my friends, you know. I, I, I really, really miss it. You know, there's yeah. a camaraderie and a, a, a thing that we do together that, I'm, that I've just been used to. This is the longest I've been home in 40 years. I know. Um, yeah, it's crazy. And I feel lucky that, you know, I mean, not to sound like an old man here, but I am 68. So, you know, I mean, when I started out, there were more gigs, just more chances to play live. Most of them really were awful, you know, <laughs> uh, little local bar gigs where you were forced to play you know crappy music for drunk people but yeah. it was a way to make a living jazz gigs were never uh uh readily available but there were some there were more it seems you know it's been this great uh wonderful thing to to, to get to know and play with all these great musicians that's been the best part about playing is is the people thing with and the inspiration that great musicians give you absolutely and one of the first great musicians i met was steve swallow i had berkeley right after high school so i started in 1970 you know i was trying to learn jazz and all and gary burton came to teach there after i'd already been there a year and uh gary burton was a big star i couldn't believe what's this guy doing coming to teacher berkeley i couldn't believe it but because uh, i was a fan of his all guitar players at that point were fans i think of the gary burton quartet yeah which had, had larry Coryell and then and then um had had sam brown you know and and uh jerry, jerry yeah. um jerry Hahn, yeah and and all these great players had come through the band so I'd seen him live, and Steve had always been the bassist, Steve Swallow. Okay. I had uh, one of the first jazz records I got as a high school kid was Art Farmer Live at the Half Note featuring Jim Hall. Steve Swallow was the bass player on there, which is still one of my favorite albums. You know, I knew about Steve's music from, from all these records that, I, that he was on. Then Gary came to teach at Berkeley, and my roommates were a really good drummer named Ted Siebes, who gave up music, I guess, but he was way better than the rest of us. He was kind of already the best drummer at Berkeley, and a really good bassist, Chip Jackson. We were all kids, and uh, we roomed together. We had a set of vibes at the apartment. <laughs> so Gary wanted to play with this drummer because he was the good kid. Gary would come over like every day after wow. school wow. and wait for the traffic to subside, and we would play tunes with him, you know? And... Uh, Unfortunately, you know, somebody would pass me a joint and every time I would take a couple of tokes and then I'd be, uh, you know, paranoid and crazed. So here I was playing with a real professional jazz musician and I'm stoned out of my glass. Stupid. But anyway, this was a great, great experience to play with Gary. And after, um, I guess it was after a year, he got Steve Swallow to come teach at Berkeley. Swallow had had moved to the west coast so he wasn't in gary's band anymore okay but uh he came to berkeley and started to teach there and joined gary's band again and i met steve and steve uh had a, a shared apartment down the street uh, i wasn't i dropped out of school after two years because i wanted to just play and like i said there were enough crappy gigs right that i could just play not jazz gigs but whatever and get by you know right and right. um I got to know Steve a little bit. We started to play together. And that was 1973, I think, or wow. 72, maybe even. He's been, you know, a teacher, friend. He's just a, a really wonderful person, you know, so we hit it off. These are the guys that, that I learned so much from because they were 
already 10 years older than Gary and Steve and these guys that I met early on. And they've been through the whole deal. You know, I mean, Steve, you know, man, he had to play with Monk one night. He played with Jim Hall a lot. You know, he knew Jim really well. Wow. And he played with Jimmy Jufrin. He made one of the greatest uh, free jazz kind of records of all time, Paul Blay, Footloose. And, right. and you know, right. so he'd done all this stuff. And he was, here he was. And, and I got to know him. And, and he was just starting to play electric bass. So he was kind of interested in guitar, you know, so we had a guitar friendship because mm-hmm. he was uh, checking out electric bass and wanted to make that his, his only instrument. Well, his, his compositions are incredible. His melodic way of playing is incredible. I know that it must have really meant a lot to you. You still play with him these days in your trio with Bill, yeah. and it's, it's one of my favorite trios, and the new record sounds really, really cool. So for people who uh, haven't checked it out, Go online, find it however you find your music, and it's Swallow Tales out on ECM. Really great album. So thank you for putting that out in the world and featuring his it, tunes. It was uh, great to, you know, I've, I've also known Steve as a composer before I even met him. Because okay. when we started to play with Gary Burton, we played, he gave us all the lead sheets to the songs that his band played. It was kind of the Gary Burton songbook. A lot of those were Swallow's tunes. Oh, okay. So I've been playing those tunes since I was... Uh, in my early 20s and they're hard you know it's a good chord progression right you want to you can spend years with yeah something and, um, yeah something like falling grace is you know still can be a challenge for me to really get into the harmony on that it's a great tune today's podcast is brought to you by marchione guitars handcrafted instruments made by luthier extraordinaire Stephen marchione i have two of his guitars i have the 59 semi hollow and i have the om acoustic they play amazing they sound like nothing else completely resonant across the whole body uh wide frets just so many overtones so much beautiful sound coming out of these instruments all made personally by steven by hand check them out at marchioneguitars.com Well, I wanted to ask one other question before i i pass it off to john story and, and will brahm here um one of the things that you talk about a lot that made a real impression on me as a jazz guitarist was this notion that you can't help but sound like yourself. And I think it's an important sort of phrase to remember that you might be influenced by a lot of people and, and transcribing things and maybe have other artists in your head when you're playing occasionally, but that ultimately you're going to end up sounding like yourself. And so you might as well embrace who you are as a player, truly. Now, you are the greatest example of that, in my opinion. You have such an incredible style all to your own. And I'm curious to ask you, what are some of the things that, over your career, you feel like you've done, or maybe some things that you didn't do that helped you kind of embrace your own way of playing and and embrace the things about you that make you who you are as a player? Well, um, I guess the first thing that comes to mind is is, uh, the things that I can't do. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, and there are certain things on the guitar like alternate picking real fast and uh, stuff like that that I have like a, a block, you know. I mean, so it's like I, re- I really have practiced it a lot, I promise. I swear. Maybe I haven't. Maybe that's my problem. But um, I think I have. And so because I couldn't articulate it like that, I would have played like Pat Martino and George Benson if I could have. But right. I couldn't. 
so I, you know, started pulling on and pulling off. And I noticed that Jim Hall played like that right. with a lot of slurring. And he was just the greatest. And I loved his playing and, you know, his, his aesthetic. And then I knew all the blues guys did that, you know, that I was originally listening to those guys when I was younger. You know, the, the stuff that I couldn't do, a lot, you know, made me do something else. And I think that, that we all have limitations you know, I followed, I, I just wanted to play anyway, so I came up with a, a little different way with uh, the articulation. I, I was always aware that jazz was the kind of music where you're supposed to, you're allowed to be yourself, Yeah, which sounded great to me. I mean, all these other kinds of music, you had to play the exact notes that were on the page, you know? Right. But to a certain extent, in jazz... You didn't have to, you know, you could like your solo could be whatever you thought it would be. So you could play the stuff that you could play well. And some guys played fast, slow. Some guys played, you know, a lot of chords. Some guys played uh, whatever, you know, and all the different possibilities were open to you in jazz music. So I was aware of that, even though I was just like everybody else, neurotically aware of my uh, shortcomings. I was also saying, well, yeah, but you could look at Look at these greats. Look at Thelonious Monk. My God, he's so right. different from anybody. And it's, he doesn't play a lot of notes, you know, right. but he plays it so incredible. You know, I was as a jazz fan, I was aware that that's what the music you know, allowed and required. So, you know, you got to do your own thing. And uh, yep. I'm like anybody else. I, I sit around and listen to the great rest of, oh, how the hell did he do that? And now with YouTube, I do. I go on there and look at like these guys shredding and say, oh, well, the, and that's okay. But in the end, we're just left with what we can do. Well, you've inspired us with what you do for such a long time. And on that note, I want to pass it off to uh, my cohort here, John Story. Yeah, man. Well, and what a great segue, actually, John, um, because when, when I actually got to meet you, you were clinicking the, the then Monk Institute at SC. I was a student with Perry. We were actually undergrads. And it was just before we went to lunch and you were in there working with Lionel and Gretchen. It was that class, 2004 or five. Yeah. And we were just about to go to lunch, John, and you played the most burning chorus over rhythm changes. I think Roman and Massimo were starting to play some B-flat rhythm changes and were burn and burn and burn. And, and here I am just like this. And it, and you looked right at me, you put your guitar down. We were all going to lunch and you looked at me and you're like, yeah, man, I've just been listening to Dexter so much recently. And I've just been shedding that. So my question is because you've been such a prolific guy on the road, you've been on the road for so many years. I've always been curious do you tend to shed on the road tunes and bebop and even transcribe or check out some of the recordings that inspired you early on? Or are you mostly focused on the music that you're playing that night and kind of gearing up to sort of take each concert to, you know, the next level or stuff? I'm just curious about your practicing on the road. Yeah, John. Hi. Good to see you again. Yeah, uh, yeah, on the road, you're mainly you're thinking about the music you have to play that night. But I've been lucky enough that I've been in bands where we would do, you know, a few weeks out there, do a month on the road. And after a while, you know the music that the band is playing and you're, you're left to your own device. And everybody starts listening to the stuff and we're sharing stuff with each other and saying, oh, have you heard this? Have you heard that? This and that. And then I, I start to shed. And the great thing about the guitar is you can play in your hotel room. You know, the saxophone players and piano players can't do that. Nobody else can do that but us, really. And so I've always uh, worked on music on the road. 
And a lot of listening, you know, a lot of cassettes, guys trading cassettes and listening to stuff. I don't transcribe whole solos. I've never done that. But I, I, you know, some little phrase that I really love that somebody played, you know, on whatever instrument, I'll try and figure it out because I don't have perfect pitch. I have to, you know, I have to uh, work at it. And so all of a sudden, oh, that's what that is, you know, and then maybe I can actually uh, absorb that and have it be part of my my music. such a great insight about just transcribing sections because I know some of my students struggle with just the notion of transcribing a whole solo prevents them from transcribing just that. Mm-hmm. So it's good just to sit down and get familiar with it. Um, before I pass it to Will too, talking about gear, just real quick. Um, I can imagine seeing Larry Coriel play with Gary Burton with that super 400 and a Marshall stack probably got <laughs> you thinking like, man, maybe I should play a semi hollow, right? <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. Because he had that super 400. Yeah, which was uh, it was la- pretty loud. I mean, that group was not that loud, though. It was still an acoustic jazz group, you know. And I don't remember him having a Marshall stack. I think he had a twin or something, you know. But he <laughs> might have played through a Marshall. Yeah. There might be... A- uh, everybody played with whatever amps were around, you know, I mean, uh, but yes, very much so. I saw the Super 400 and I saw all the jazz guys, you know, Barney Kessel and, and uh, Wes Montgomery and, and everybody had big fat guitars. Right, right. Yeah. Well, thanks, man. It's so great to see you. I'm glad to hear you're well and, and on to Will here because I know Will's got some got a question for you too. What's man. up, John? Hi, Will. Well, first, your music has, has accompanied me through my teens all through my 20s into my early 30s. It's such an honor. I'd love to hone in on on one specific era that I've always been crazy about. Uh, basically between Blue Matter and Pick Hits Live uh, ah, the 80s yeah. into the early 90s. Those albums, like, I, I distinctly can remember every moment of the first time I heard you're playing. It was my teacher showed me Blue Matter and, like, it, 
whatever brain cells were firing, it's kind of like engraved in my mind. But <laughs> I just love to talk about that era. And like you were playing with Dennis Chambers a lot. And I mean, there was so much mm-hmm. fire on those albums, like even with the mm-hmm. production and all the sounds you added. And I mean, your solos and your and the melodies and the interplay, if, if you don't mind, just bringing us into that zone a little yeah, bit. It's a good period for me you know, playing, but also writing tunes. You know, I really was working on it. And uh, it was a direct result of playing with Miles Davis because, you know, you know, I started out playing fusion with Billy Cobb and everything, but I wanted to learn how to play jazz. So, you know, then I, after that band Cobb and thing broke up, I came back to New York and I, I was working on learning how to play tunes, you know, and swing and all and and I saw and Dave Liebman had a band. I played with him, which was re- really educational because it was swinging. And then there were all these hard chords that he would write really hard. And uh, I, you know, I was just jobbing around New York. And then uh, Miles regrouped and started his own group first with Mike Stern, who was my buddy, who I'd been playing with uh, at a club called Fifty Five Grand Street. Not 55 Christopher Street. So, you know, it, Mike got the gig with Miles, and then I got the gig after a while, and after a year or something, and there were two guitars. So it, Miles was, what I'm trying to say is he was playing fusion music, but all of a sudden it, it had this new depth for me because it was Miles, because he was the great, greatest jazz musician ever, and some might say anyway. But at that time, he was definitely the leader of jazz and the the founding father godfather of the music and he was super into using funk rhythms and electric rhythm sections you know and this was sort of before Wynton Marcellus and the sort of neo acoustic jazz movement was of course there was always that you know around and I remember Keith Jarrett trio you know and so I'm playing with Miles you know and I really just went for it and I'm I said okay I want to write some music that is uh using electric bass and and uh funk drums and electric keyboards you know it's, it's the 80s you know and there was all this pop music mtv came on you know yeah. and you couldn't get away from it. it was on tv you know and it was like wow this is and i saw so all of a sudden i knew about pop music again that i hadn't known about for years because i'd been in my jazz thing all through the 70s so it was a really good time for me. And during the time I was with Miles, we made Still Warm, which was the first of or Electric Outlet, actually. I made this series of fusion-y kind of records. First Electric Outlet, and then I really had worked on the tunes. And, and I remember I even played some of those tunes for Miles because I was still in his band. And, and uh, it was almost a demo to try and, you know, I wanted him to play some of my tunes and he ended up playing one of my tunes that wasn't on that record after that you know so then i made that and, and when i was still with miles i made still warm which was omar hakeem daryl jones on bass and don Grolnick on keyboards and that was kind of the prototype of what became you know my quartet thing with electric keyboards funky drums and bass and then i left miles and i i, I wanted to start my own group I met a keyboard player who's really known as a jazz keyboard player, Mark Copeland, great mm. player. And and his name was Mark Cohen then. <laughs> he had a different, but then Mark Cohen, the pop singer, came out 
and he uh, used his middle name, which was Copeland. And uh, so Mark Copeland started to play my little fusion tunes with me on whatever gigs I could get. I, I left Miles and said, I'm going to do my own thing. And Mark had lived in Washington, D.C., and he knew a bass player, Gary Granger. And he said, I've got this friend. This guy can play jazz and funk, too, all electric. And he knows how to play tunes and everything. He doesn't even read music. knows how to play tunes and can play... And, and so I started to play with Gary, and he was unbelievable, man. He could play everything. And this was when slap bass was coming in, you know, with a thumb. Mm -hmm. So we started to play with Gary. And then Gary said, well, I've got this friend who I grew up with who's an incredible drummer. You should try playing with him. He's the drummer in P-Funk. And I said, really? And he goes, yeah. He's like from my neighborhood in Baltimore. And uh, during the, the time I'd been with Miles, there was a cassette that was circulating of a live gig with P-Funk. And the thing was, um, this music is so incredible because P-Funk usually had two drummers, at least two drummers. But this one thing of the P-Funk All-Stars, they only needed one drummer. <laughs> and it was this great drummer, Dennis Chambers. But I didn't even know what his name was. You know, uh, Dennis was from the P-Funk scene, right? And those guys were all into fusion and everything, but they were in a different world, kind of, you know, the R&B pop world, really. And Dennis wanted to play with some jazz guys, so he jumped on it, and, and he, he joined my band. And I was so lucky I had this band with Dennis and Gary and this funk thing, this Blue Matter groove that they did is a specific go-go beat that's kind of from Washington, D.C., that they put on one of my tunes. And uh, they're uh, super high-quality musicians. It was just the right time for funk and R&B of that period to come together with jazz through the tunes and, and, you know, through everybody's concept. We had a number of really good keyboard players, first Rob Aries and then Jim Beard. It was a great period for me, and... Uh, it gets a little bit, not by us, you know, but by the sort of jazz people overlook it because it sounds so 80s to them. You know, Weather Report and Miles' music and Herbie Hancock's Headhunters and stuff. That's great music. Before I pass it off to Perry, I mean, those albums have been beyond, like, inspiring to me. Uh, and I just got to say, no, so actually much, talking to you, your solo on Ote is just, like, the best ever. <laughs> so I'll leave it at that. I'll give it back to Perry. <laughs> well, you know what? I mean, that's playing on one chord, I think, right? You know, and to play 
to, to develop a, a comprehensive style of playing over a vamp. Yeah. And and Miles was completely into that. And and all those guys, you know, because it's coming from the free freer jazz the way Miles played in the 60s. Miles kept that chromatic approach in in uh, in his music in the uh, 80s, you know, and uh 70s and and had developed that and and I uh was influenced by that and all the tenor players and everything. But thanks, Will. Oh man. Thank you. Thank you. I'll, I'll give it back to Perry now. Yeah, just just incredible what you've uh, been through in your career, John. Uh, the last question that I had for you, you know, you've you've done so much at this point. You know, uh, you've had so many recordings uh, under your own name as a leader. Uh, where do you see yourself going next? You know, what's next for you in terms of a recording project? Is there anything, it doesn't have to be formed, or anything that maybe you're, you're percolating on that you might uh, be interested in putting, putting out there in the future? Well, um, you know, it's just percolating and it's not formalized, but I've been playing really some, you know, all kinds of stuff. But, you know, since I did Swallow Tales and been playing with my trio, it's been pretty jazzy. And I'd like to... Uh, play some stuff that's coming out of uh, jazz rock more and get back into that, see what happens. Um, but hopefully, you know, reassess and simplify, and that's all. But I've been trying to write some stuff. I, I, I haven't been writing for the last couple of years, so I, I'm just thinking, you know, to try and write some tunes. And that's and just in the last few days, I've thought, well, that's the direction maybe. You know, I have to give myself an assignment. I can't just write songs. I have to, like, say, oh, I have to do a a ballad for an album or I have to do whatever, you know. So that's my assignment right now is to write some electric jazz and uh, reassess, you know, not play Blue Matter stuff again so much. Well, we look forward to what that... And also, I've been trying to do solo guitar, believe it or not. Which is oh, yeah. impossible to do. I'm sure you guys know that solo <laughs> guitar is impossible. So, but it keeps you busy trying to do that. It does. Okay. It absolutely does. Yeah, man. Uh, well, we are beyond excited to whatever else you're going to be putting out in the near future. I hope uh, you get through this next year uh, and you're safe and your family is doing well. I know these are these are challenging times, and thank you for taking the time to connect with us here on our podcast and oh. sharing your stories with us. It's, it's really incredible. Man, thanks for having me, Perry. No, this is great. You know, we all just need something to do, right? We have to find our assignments, and I know you guys are the same way, yeah. and this is part of it for you, you know, to mm-hmm. share on this level with other musicians and because we need each other and we inspire each other, you know. I That's mean, right. we we really do. I don't care who you are; you're inspired by other musicians, and even just talking, listening, yeah. getting the vibe, as they say. Well, have a great rest of the day, and um, I hope to see you on the scene sometime soon when I can come out to a club and catch you. Uh, but until then, yeah, be, be well. Thank you for all the music, and uh, we will we'll talk to you again. Thanks, John. Okay. Thanks, John. Thanks, Will, and John too. Thanks a lot, guys. Great to yeah, see you. Take care. All right. Okay. Bye, John. We'll stay in touch. Yes, absolutely. Thanks again for joining us for another exciting edition of High Action. We'd like to take this moment to thank our sponsors for making this podcast possible, especially those who follow us on Patreon. 
If you'd like to join us, visit us at www.patreon.com slash newwestguitargroup. There you can subscribe monthly to our Patreon page and get exclusive content from today's podcast. Lastly, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts for all the future episodes. Once again, I'm John Story with New West Guitar Group, and thanks for joining us on High Action.